Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 6. We're reading verses 1 through 14, but particularly focusing our attention on verses 1 through 7. If you're visiting with us, we are in the midst of a series through the book of Romans. We've been taking it sort of in big chunks, and uh, we are coming now to one of the, uh, the best chapters in the entire book. Uh, there are many chapters of the book of Romans we could say that about. Uh, but chapter 6 uh, truly, surely is uh, one of the most glorious uh, of all as we think about our fight against sin, uh, our battle against temptation. Uh, the words that are in this passage are so important. Hear God's word, Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. O Lord our God, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Would you come now? Would you pierce deeply, would you give us the assurance that comes from our union with Jesus Christ? Oh Lord, our God, we love you. We desire to love you more, to follow you more closely. Lord, would you equip us now by your word and by your Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were in seminary, we lived in a duplex in Bellhaven, 1012 Poplar Boulevard, if you ever drive by it, you will see that the driveway of this duplex uh, goes up the left side of the duplex and wraps around to the back. Now, there's not enough room in the back of this duplex uh, to, to turn around, right? It would be like a four or a six or an eight-point turn uh, to get down and go drive down the driveway forward. So the, 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 the easiest way to do it is to back down the driveway. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Because this driveway goes all the way up to the duplex itself. One day we were about to leave for a trip, 
uh, a weekend trip, and all of a sudden we realized that our phone lines were dead. Remember phone lines, landlines, remember those things? And and so they were dead. So I went outside and I saw that the telephone box had been knocked off of the wall and the wires had been cut. And I don't know if I'd been reading spy novels or what, but I remember thinking the first thing, someone has cut our phone wires. They're going to break into our house while we're gone on our trip. But then I thought again, I said, wait a minute, there was a delivery truck this weekend and he, he must have hit the phone box because the driveway is so narrow and it's so close to the house. So you think, okay, I'm going to drive down this driveway. I'm going to avoid the house. Unfortunately, on the other side of the driveway, a very narrow driveway, was about a foot drop-off. We drove a Toyota Corolla uh, and uh, a Honda Accord. If we would have fallen off of that drop-off, right, we would have bottomed out immediately. And so here's this driveway. Uh, on the one hand, you have the house. On the other hand, you have uh, this, this ditch. It, it was like every morning, our own personal Scylla and Charybdis from Homer's Odyssey. Right? You had to, to be so careful not to hit the house and not to fall out the ditch. Now, now I tell you about this story. Some of you heard that story before, perhaps. It, it has stuck with me ever since seminary because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we face two dangers. Just like there was a danger on one side, the house, and a danger on the other side, the ditch, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives to us, presents to us these twin dangers, twin errors. On the one side, legalism. And on the other side, lawlessness, or what is often called antinomianism, anti, against, nomos, the Greek word for law, against the law. Legalism says to us that grace is not enough. That faith in Jesus is not enough. Legalism says that the only way you get salvation, right, is the way that the old company Smith Barney made their money, the old-fashioned way. You earn it. You earn it. You have to do more. You have to try harder. You've got to, 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 to merit salvation. Paul has been combating these false teachings through the first five chapters of this book. But now he tells to us that the gospel, the grace of justification through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, also combats another enemy, another danger, the danger of lawlessness, of antinomianism. Because Paul has just written something that is open to objection, that is open to distortion. You see it there in chapter 5, verse 20. He's just said, That the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, Paul knew that some people would object to this. Other people would distort this truth. And so look at what he writes in chapter 6, verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, Paul's anticipating this objection to his gospel that he preaches. See, Paul, this is the problem with your preaching free grace and righteousness through faith. It just opens the floodgates to people thinking that it doesn't matter how they live. They can live however they want. They can sin with impunity, and they can think that God's grace will just overlook it all. Right? Let's just sin, they might think, and grace will cover it. Now, of course, these objectors would be partly right, wouldn't they? Because there have always been people who distort and abuse and misapply the gospel of free grace. Amen, Paul. That's exactly why we love your your gospel of free grace, because we can do whatever we want now. We can live however we please. Free from the law, oh, blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. 
The gospel is this get-out-of-jail-free card that I can use every time I disobey the Lord. Grace is always going to be there to bail us out. Or as one of the characters in a poem by the poet W.H. Auden put it, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is an admirable arrangement. This is great. This is so nice. Perhaps you've seen this sort of an abuse of grace. Maybe it's ever even been in your own heart, in your own way of thinking. Well, it doesn't really matter what I do or say or think because I'm forgiven. God's going to forgive my sins. Oftentimes, this spirit of lawlessness arises in the hearts of those who have grown up in a a highly strict and legalistic environment. And all of a sudden, they hear the doctrines of grace. They hear what Paul has taught us in the first five chapters of this great letter. Finally, they hear of the freedom of the gospel. Finally, they hear of the graciousness of the gospel. And so in their attempts to avoid the house of legalism, they fall into the, the ditch of antinomianism, of lawlessness. Now, the, the folks who are in that house think, well, you know what? The problem with these antinomians, these lawless people, is they just need more of the law. Right? They need more legalism. But Paul says, no, no, the, the remedy for lawlessness is not more law. The remedy for lawlessness is more gospel, more grace. Because Paul knows that both of these extremes are from the pit of hell. Both legalism and lawlessness are contrary to the gospel of grace. Because the grace that justifies us is also the grace that sanctifies us. The grace that justifies the ungodly is also the grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness. The grace that declares sinners righteous is the grace that makes sinners righteous. The grace that saves us from the penalty of sin also saves us from the power of sin. The grace that forgives us also changes us. And so as the whole Bible does, Paul, in this passage that we have read, is intent to keep us from both errors of legalism and lawlessness to help us drive straight down the driveway, the narrow driveway of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning in our text, I want you to see three things. First, the truth that transforms. Second, the sign that reminds. And third, the response that reveals. And as I said, we're only going to be looking at verses 1 to 7. Uh, we, I make the preaching calendar out every October, and this past week I I've been second-guessing how I divided the text of. I told Dean, oh, Dean, I, I don't know if I should have divided verses 1 to 14 up into two sermons, uh, but I've done it. It's done. And so hopefully what you get is an emphasis this morning on, on the indicatives, the things that are, the things that are true. And we'll see some imperatives, some commands, but next week it'll be a sort of flip-flop. You'll, you'll see some indicatives, you'll see some truths, but you'll really see in more detail in verses 8 to 14 the the commands, the imperatives that flow from the truth, the reality that we see this morning. So let's look first at the truth that transforms. And what is that truth? It is union with Christ. The truth that transforms is union with Christ. In verse 2, Paul answers the question that he posed in verse 1 with a categorical denial and with another question. By no means, he says, 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Is the gospel going to lead God's people to sin more, Paul wonders? Is it going to lead us to live in sin, to walk in sin? Absolutely not, Paul says. And why can he say that? Because we have died with reference to sin, Paul answers. Just as physical death radically transfers us out of this physical realm, so our spiritual death, Paul is saying, has decisively transferred us out of the spiritual realm in which sin reigns as a power, as a master. And therefore, we must not, we cannot, we will not live as subjects and servants of sin any longer. We have died to sin. We are no longer alive to its tyranny to its reign and its rule in our lives. Rather, we have found refuge in the reign and the rule of God and in his grace. Our connection to sin has been severed, Paul is saying. The way that if you've got vines that are climbing up your house and and you cut it off down near the roots, that vine, though it may still look alive, it is dead. It is dead. We have died to sin. And therefore, it is unthinkable, Paul is saying, by no means. It's unthinkable that we who are dead to sin would continue to live in rebellion against God and against his grace. But of course, it raises a question. How did this reality of our death to sin come to be? How did we die to sin? Well, Paul says in this text that we died to sin through our union with Christ Jesus in his death. Look at verse 5. We have been united with him in a death like his. You see, when we believed in Jesus, we were joined to him in holy matrimony, as it were. We were married to him. We became one with him. All that he did in his time on earth has become ours through faith. His perfect righteousness, his life of obedience has been reckoned to our account. We've seen that throughout the early part of Romans. But it's not just his righteous life that is ours. We share in his death to sin as well. Jesus bore sin's penalty on the cross. So it has no more claim, no more demand, no more power over him. Look at verse 9. Again, we're going to kind of slip into Dean's text from next week. Death, he says, has no longer has dominion over Jesus. And we are one with Jesus now. His death was our death. The same is true of us. Sin and death have no power over us either. And even Paul goes on, not only in verse 5, are we united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We participate in Jesus' resurrection just as we do in his death. Just as Jesus rose to a new life, just as surely, Paul says, we will walk in newness of life here and now because we are one with him in life as well as death. Notice in verses 6 and 7, Paul continues to unpack further this union with Jesus and his death, a union that ushers forth in the freedom of, of new life, freedom from sin's power. Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Our old self, not some part of us, but the whole of us, the the entire unregenerated person that we were in union with Adam before our conversion 
That old man was crucified with Christ on the cross so that our body of sin, that is, our body as it is under the control of sin, might be brought to nothing, might be rendered powerless and, and inoperative so that we might be set free from the enslaving power of sin. Now, in the new man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, we are new men, we are new women, we're new creations in Jesus Christ, and we can live a new life that pleases him in the body, obeying him, doing what brings him glory, bearing fruit for eternal life. The old is gone, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The new is come. We're part of the new creation in Christ, and so we can walk in this newness of life. How can we live in sin any longer, Paul says? We have died with Christ. We have raised with Christ. The chains of sin's dominion have been broken. We must never put them on again. This is the truth that transforms. This is the, the truth. Our union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, we have once and for all died to sin, been raised up to walk in newness of life. We've been freed from sin's power and therefore, we can pursue holiness in the fear of God. This truth transforms us. It is the foundation of our struggle for holiness. It's as we remember this truth, as we believe this truth over and over again, we have the resources that we need to change, to stop sinning, to put sin to death, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And so Paul wants to remind us of this truth of our union with Christ. But that brings us to the second point. There's not just a truth that transforms, there's also a sign that reminds. And what is the sign? It's the sign of baptism. Did you notice how in verses three and four, Paul connects the sacrament of baptism to this reality of the believer's union with Christ? He writes, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what is Paul saying here? Well, he's telling the Romans what they already know. Do you not know? Right? Unfortunately, I think too often the church today doesn't know this, doesn't remember this. We don't know it as well as perhaps they did in the, book of, in the day of the, the Romans. And it's this, water baptism is a visible sign that pictures the believer's union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. It pictures our identification with him. It pictures our fellowship with him. Baptism is an outward sign of an inner reality, of the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, what does he do but unite us to the Son of God? He dwells within us. Christ dwells within us by his Spirit. We become one with Jesus by the Holy Spirit's work. The waters of baptism declare to our senses that everyone who believes in Jesus is washed, is cleansed by the blood of Jesus and renewed by the Holy Spirit. But hear this, not just from the guilt of sin, also from the power of sin. Baptism points to our union with Jesus in his death. It's not just the Lord's Supper that points us to the death of Jesus, that reminds us of the death of Jesus. Paul is saying baptism 
should remind you of the death of Jesus into which you have been baptized. Just as death is confirmed decisively by burial, if you're buried, you really are dead, Paul says that we were buried with Jesus by baptism into death. The old is gone. The new is come. Our old man has been crucified with Jesus. We have died to sin in Christ. We have been set free from the power of sin through our union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. We've been raised up to walk in newness of life. And all of that, though you perhaps don't think about it, though you perhaps don't see it, But Paul is telling us all of that is pictured in baptism. Now, this text raises a lot of controversial issues when it comes to the topic of baptism. And I can't leave it without trying to answer them to some degree. First, let me ask this question. Is Paul here teaching us that everyone who is baptized is automatically united to Jesus Christ? Is he saying to us that that if you have water put upon you, then you are saved. You are regenerated. You are born again. You are one who has been united to Jesus. And the answer is, of course not. John Stott put it so beautifully. He said, Paul hasn't spent three chapters saying that justification is by faith alone, only now to turn around in chapter six and to say justification and salvation is by baptism. Of course not. Of course not. No, what Paul is doing here is what we see in other passages of the Bible Even Jesus himself, what does he say about the Lord's Supper? This is my body. This is my body. But we say, no, it's not. He doesn't mean it's literally his body. It's a sign. It's a picture of his body. In the same way, baptism. When the water is is placed and poured out upon a person, it's not a magic ritual that somehow automatically accomplishes all that is set forth in the picture. No, no. Not every infant or every adult who has water put upon them is saved. Salvation comes only through faith. Baptism is a picture. It's a sign of the reality. Even if, mark this, even if the person who is baptized, whether infant, whether adult, whether one who professes faith in Jesus Christ or the child of a believer, whether they never receive the reality that is signified, the reality that is pictured, picture of baptism does not fail to be a picture of union with Christ. It's not a union that they themselves possess or ever will possess perhaps, but it's a picture that speaks clearly of this beautiful truth of union with Christ. Sometimes people receive the reality before they receive the sign. Sometimes people receive the reality after they receive the sign, whether covenant child or Professing believer, not every profession of faith is a true possession of faith. And so Paul here is saying nothing about baptism automatically guaranteeing salvation or automatically accomplishing salvation. No, as we saw in chapter 4, baptism is a sign and a seal to faith. It speaks of all the benefits that believers in Jesus have, whether the person receiving the sign has already believed or has not yet been given saving faith. So let's put that question aside and turn to another question that often arises. Is Paul here teaching that the mode of baptism must be by immersion since baptism points to our dying with Christ and our rising with Christ? 
Immersion speaks so clearly it appears that we go under the ground, under the water, and we come up out of the ground, out of the water. Well, with all due respect to our Baptist brothers and sisters, I would answer that question with the answer, no. Baptism by immersion is not necessary, and Romans 6 does not teach that baptism is by the mode of immersion. First, let's just say this. Paul is not talking about the mode of baptism here at all. He's talking about the meaning of baptism. It's, it's symbolic meaning that it points us to our union with Christ. But second, we would say this. Paul is, is using a, a term here, buried with Jesus in baptism, but he uses several terms in this chapter and across his writings uh, that could be taken as modes of baptism. So why does buried with Jesus get to be the verb that, that determines the mode of baptism, we would ask? Why not crucified with Christ? Why not, in verse 5, united with him? Or we could also translate that word, grown together with him. Why not Galatians 3, clothed with Christ? Why not Colossians 2, circumcised with Christ? You might say, well, it's easier to, to, to deal with burial. You go under the water. Well, that, that brings us to a third objection. Even if that word buried with were determining the mode, the biblical mode of, of burial was not the way we do it today by being placed into the ground under the dirt. Rather, in biblical times, they would take a rock, they would hew out a, a hole in that rock, and they would place the body this way into the tomb. And so the idea of burial equaling immersion, I would argue, is really imposing a modern view of burial on the text itself. Even if we were to find a mode in the word buried with, it wouldn't be the mode of immersion. And then, of course, we would argue that Throughout the scriptures, the uh, baptism in the Bible is far more connected with the, the idea of pouring out, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that best fits the historical circumstances of baptisms in the early church, as well as the Bible's usage of the word to baptize. And it maintains best this connection that Paul is seeking to make here, that it's through the cleansing waters of baptism being placed upon both the repentant sinner and his covenant household, that God beautifully draws this picture and seals his promise to every believer in Jesus Christ. As I said to the children this morning, baptism calls us to faith. Baptism calls us to walk as those who have been changed by the gospel. And so it calls us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It calls us to follow him. We are identified with him. If you are a believer this morning, your baptism screams that you are in union with Jesus, cleansed not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin, by the blood of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit's regenerating and renewing work. And so every time you see a baptism, you remember Romans 6. Every time you are tempted by sin, you remember Romans 6. You remember that you are in union with Jesus Christ. You remember that you have been cleansed from the power of sin. You are to meditate on all that, that your baptism pictures. All the reality that comes to you who believe in Jesus Christ. And if you have been baptized this morning, but have not yet put your faith in Jesus, whether as a child or as an adult, the call is to believe the gospel, to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the last point quickly. We've seen the truth that transforms. We've seen the sign that reminds. 
Finally, we see the response that reveals. Dean's going to get into it more next week as he looks at all the imperatives. But I, I just want you to see that there are even some implied imperatives in the verses that we're looking at. Verses 1 to 7. Verse 2, live in sin. Verse 4, walk in newness of life. Verse 7, has been set free from sin. Paul again is saying, if we have been united to Christ, we must not still live in sin. How can we? It's a moral anomaly. It's incompatible with what has happened to us spiritually. Rather, as those who've been raised with Christ, we are to walk in newness of life. We are to live as free men and women. Verse 7, one who has died has been set free from sin. So let us walk in that freedom. The rest of Romans 6 will unpack this further, but I don't want you to leave because who knows, you may not be here next week. You've got to see verse 11 and 12. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In a word, Paul is saying, be who you are. Be who you are. You have died to sin, so don't live in it. You're dead in Christ. You're alive in Christ. Walk in newness of life. Don't obey sin and its lusts and its passions. Obey the Lord. You are a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, Paul will say. Be who you are. But mark this. If you refuse, then what are you doing but revealing that you don't belong to him? You are not his. You are not in union with him. That's why I said it's a, it's a response that reveals. It's either going to reveal this life of godly freedom that is ours through faith in Jesus, or it will reveal that we have never truly been born again. And maybe you hear what I'm saying and you think, but I know myself. I know my life. I know my, my temptations and I know my, my proclivities to sin, my inclination to sin. Well, guess what? These imperatives that we've just looked at, they're actually very encouraging because they remind us that what Paul is speaking of here is not some idea that, that, that being dead to sin means you will no longer practice sin ever in this life. No, rather the fact that Paul has to command us to let not sin reign in our mortal bodies reminds us that in this life we still will struggle with indwelling sin. Paul's going to say this much more in detail in chapter 7. We're still going to have to fight against temptation. We're still going to have to struggle against sin. But here's the thing. Because of our union with Jesus Christ, that struggle with sin, those struggles with temptation, when you see yourself fall over and over again, perhaps, it, it should never lead you to despair because you have been united to Christ in his death. You've been united to Christ in his resurrection. You always have within you by his Holy Spirit the power to change. You are in him. He is in you. Sanctification, yes, it may be slower than you wish, but God is at work. He is perfecting the good work that he began in you. He will conform you to the image of Christ. You are dead to sin in Jesus Christ. I remember in college, and perhaps some of you remember this as well, if you were involved with RUF, there was a, a saying that, that went about. Perhaps you heard of it here at this church. That as Christians, the gospel declares this beautiful reality that we are no longer struggling to be free, but we are free to struggle. 
We're no longer struggling to be free, struggling to be forgiven, struggling to, 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 to make it so that God accepts us and that we can get rid of sin's power out of our life. No, we are free in Christ through union with his death and resurrection. And we are free now to fight, free to struggle, free to strive, free to live in a manner that pleases God, knowing that we will sometimes fail, but knowing that in Christ, not only are we forgiven and cleansed from the guilt of sin, but we are cleansed from the power of sin. May God enable us to struggle with all our might in union with his son. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone, we have hope, we have freedom. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the way you picture forth for us our salvation in the sacrament of baptism. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who enables us to do what you have called us to do. Oh Lord, make it so more and more in the lives of your people here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.